Justice Kennedy delivered the opinion of the court. Liberty protects the person from unwarranted government intrusions into a dwelling or other private places. In our tradition, the state is not omnipresent in the home, and there are other spheres of our lives and existence outside the home where the state should not be a dominant presence. Freedom extends beyond spatial bounds. Liberty presumes an autonomy of self and includes freedom of thought, belief, expression, and certain intimate conduct. The instant case involves liberty of the person both in its spatial and more transcendent dimensions. Part 1 The question before the court is the validity of a Texas statute making it a crime for two persons of the same sex to engage in certain intimate sexual conduct. In Houston, Texas, officers of the Harris County Police Department were dispatched to a private residence in response to a reported weapons disturbance. They entered an apartment where one of the petitioners, John Geddes Lawrence, resided. The right of the police to enter does not seem to have been questioned. The officers observed Lawrence and another man, Tyron Garner, engaging in a sexual act. The two petitioners were arrested, held in custody overnight, and charged and convicted before a justice of the peace. The complaints described their crime as deviant sexual intercourse, namely anal sex, with a member of the same sex. Man. The applicable state law is Texas Penal Code Section 21.06a. It provides a person commits an offense if he engages in deviant sexual intercourse with another individual of the same sex. The statute defines deviant sexual intercourse as follows. A. Any contact between any part of the genitals of one person and the mouth or anus of another person, or B, the penetration of the genitals or the anus of another person with an object. The petitioners exercised their right to a trial de novo in Harris County Criminal Court. They challenged the statute as a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and a like provision of the Texas Constitution, Texas Constitution Article 1, Section 3A. Those contentions were rejected. The petitioners, having entered a plea of nolo contendere, were each fined $200 and assessed court costs of $141.25. The Court of Appeals for the Texas 14th District considered the petitioners' federal constitutional arguments under both the Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses of the 14th Amendment. After hearing the case, and Bonk, the court, in a divided opinion, rejected the constitutional arguments and affirmed the convictions. The majority opinion indicates that the Court of Appeals considered our decision in Bowers v. Hardwick to be controlling on the federal due process aspect of the case. Bowers, then being authoritative, was proper. We granted certiorari to consider three questions. 1. 
whether petitioners' criminal convictions under the Texas Homosexual Conduct Law, which criminalizes sexual intimacy by same-sex couples, but not identical behavior by different sex couples, violates the 14th Amendment guarantee of equal protection of the laws. 2. Whether petitioners' criminal convictions for adult consexual intimacy in the home violate their vital interests in liberty and privacy protected by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, and three, whether Bowers v. Hardwick should be overruled. The petitioners were adults at the time of the alleged offense. Their conduct was in private and consensual. Part 2 we conclude the case should be resolved by determining whether the petitioners were free as adults to engage in the private conduct in the exercise of their liberty under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. For this inquiry, we deem it necessary to reconsider the court's holding in Bowers. There are broad statements of the substantive reach of liberty under the Due Process Clause in earlier cases, including Pierce v. Society of Sisters, 1925, and Meyer v. Nebraska, 1923. But the most pertinent beginning point is our decision in Griswold v. Connecticut, 1965. In Griswold, the court invalidated a state law prohibiting the use of drugs or devices of contraception and counseling or aiding and abetting the use of contraceptives. The court described the protected interest as a right to privacy and placed emphasis on the marriage relation and the protected space of the marital bedroom. After Griswold, it was established that the right to make certain decisions regarding sexual conduct extends beyond the marital relationship. In Eisenstadt v. Baird, 1972, the court invalidated a law prohibiting the distribution of contraceptives to unmarried persons. The case was decided under the Equal Protection Clause, but with respect to unmarried persons, the court went on to state the fundamental position that the law impaired the exercise of their personal rights. It quoted from the statement of the Court of Appeals, finding the law to be in conflict with fundamental human rights and it followed with this statement of its own. Quote, It is true that in Griswold, the right of privacy in question inhered in the marital relationship. If the right of privacy means anything, it is the right of the individual, married or single, to be free from unwarranted governmental intrusion into matters so fundamentally affecting a person as the decision whether to bear or beget a child. The opinions in Griswold and Eisenstadt were part of the background for the decision in Roe v. Wade. As is well known, the case involved a challenge to the Texas law prohibiting abortions, but the laws of other states were affected as well. Although the court held the woman's rights were not absolute, her right to an elected abortion did have real and substantial protection as an exercise of her liberty under the Due Process Clause. The court cited cases that protect spatial freedom 
and cases that go well beyond it. Roe recognized the right of a woman to make certain fundamental decisions affecting her destiny and confirmed once more that the protection of liberty under the Due Process Clause has a substantive dimension of fundamental significance in defining the rights of the person. In Carey v. Population Services International, 1977, the court confronted a New York law forbidding sale or distribution of contraceptive devices to persons under 16 years of age. Although there was no single opinion for the court, the law was invalidated. Both Eisenstadt and Carey, as well as the holding and rationale in Roe, confirmed that the reasoning of Griswold could not be confined to the protection of rights of married adults. This was the state of the law with respect to some of the most relevant cases when the court considered Bowers v. Hardwick. The facts in Bowers had some similarities to the instant case. A police officer, whose right to enter seems not to have been in question, observed Hardwick in his own bedroom engaging in intimate sexual conduct with another adult male. The conduct was in violation of a Georgia statute making it a criminal offense to engage in sodomy. One difference between the two cases is that the Georgia statute prohibited the conduct whether or not the participants were of the same sex, while the Texas statute, as we have seen, applies only to participants of the same sex. Hardwick was not prosecuted, but he brought an action in federal court to declare the state statute invalid. He alleged he was a practicing homosexual and that the criminal prohibition violated rights guaranteed to him by the Constitution. The court, in an opinion by Justice White, sustained the Georgia law. Chief Justice Berger and Justice Powell joined the opinion of the court and filed separate concurring opinions. Four justices dissented. The court began its substantive discussion in Bowers as follows. The issue presented is whether the federal constitution confers a fundamental right upon homosexuals to engage in sodomy and hence invalidates the laws of the many states that still make such conduct illegal and have done so for a very long time. That statement, we now conclude, discloses the court's own failure to appreciate the extent of the liberty at stake. To say that the issue in Bowers was simply the right to engage in certain sexual conduct demeans the claim that the individual put forward, just as it would demean a married couple were it to be said marriage is simply about the right to have sexual intercourse. The laws involved in Bowers, and here are, to be sure, statutes that purport to do no more than prohibit a particular sexual act. Their penalties and purposes, though, have more far-reaching consequences, touching upon the most private human conduct, sexual behavior, and in the most private of places, the home. The statutes do seek to control a personal relationship that, whether or not entitled to formal recognition in the law, is within the liberty of persons to choose without being punished as criminals. This, as a general rule, should counsel against attempts by the state 
or a court to define the meaning of the relationship or set its boundaries absent injury to a person or abuse of an institution the law protects. It suffices for us to acknowledge that adults may choose to enter upon this relationship in the confines of their homes and their own private lives and still retain their dignity as free persons. When sexuality finds overt expression in intimate conduct with another person, the conduct can be but one element in a personal bond that is more enduring. The liberty protected by the Constitution allows homosexual persons the right to make this choice. Having misapprehended the claim of liberty there presented to it, and thus stating the claim to be whether there is a fundamental right to engage in consensual sodomy, the Bowers Court said, proscriptions against that conduct have ancient roots. In academic writings and in many of the scholarly amicus briefs filed to assist the court in this case, there are fundamental criticisms of the historical premises relied upon by the majority and concurring opinions in Bowers. We need not enter this debate in the attempt to reach a definitive historical judgment, but the following considerations counsel against adopting the definitive conclusions upon which Bowers placed such reliance. At the outset, it should be noted that there is no long-standing history in this country of laws directed at homosexual conduct as a distinct matter. Beginning in colonial times, there were prohibitions of sodomy derived from the English criminal laws passed in the first instance by the Reformation Parliament of 1533. The English prohibition was understood to include relations between men and women, as well as relations between men and men. Nineteenth-century commentators similarly read American sodomy, buggery, and crime-against-nature statutes as criminalizing certain relations between men and women and between men and men. The absence of legal prohibitions focusing on homosexual conduct may be explained in part by noting that, according to some scholars, the concept of the homosexual as a distinct category of person did not emerge until the late 19th century. Thus, Early American sodomy laws were not directed at homosexuals as such, but instead sought to prohibit non-procreative sexual activity more generally. This does not suggest approval of homosexual conduct. It does tend to show that this particular form of conduct was not thought of as a separate category from like conduct between heterosexual persons. Laws prohibiting sodomy do not seem to have been enforced against consenting adults acting in private. A substantial number of sodomy prosecutions and convictions for which there are surviving records were for predatory acts against those who could not or did not consent, as in the case of a minor or the victim of an assault. As to these, one purpose for the prohibitions was to ensure there would be no lack of coverage if a predator committed a sexual assault that did not constitute rape as defined by the criminal law. 
Thus, the model sodomy indictments presented in a 19th century treatise addressed the predatory acts of an adult man against a minor girl or minor boy instead of targeting relations between consenting adults in private. 19th century sodomy prosecutions typically involved relations between men and minor girls or minor boys, relations between adults involving force, relations between adults implicating disparity in status, or relations between men and animals. To the extent that there were any prosecutions for the acts in question, 19th century evidence rules imposed a burden that would make a conviction more difficult to obtain, even taking into account the problems always inherent in prosecuting consensual acts committed in private. Under then-prevailing standards, a man could not be convicted of sodomy based upon testimony of a consenting partner because the partner was considered an accomplice. A partner's testimony, however, was admissible if he or she had not consented to the act or was a minor and therefore incapable of consent. The rule may explain, in part, the infrequency of these prosecutions. In all events, that infrequency makes it difficult to say that society approved of a rigorous and systematic punishment of the consensual acts committed in private and by adults. The long-standing criminal prohibition of homosexual sodomy, upon which the Bowers decision placed such reliance, is as consistent with the general condemnation of non-procreative sex as it is with an established tradition of prosecuting acts because of their homosexual character. The policy of punishing consenting adults for private acts was not much discussed in the early legal literature. We can infer that one reason for this was the very private nature of the conduct. Despite the absence of prosecutions, there may have been periods in which there was public criticism of homosexuals, such as an insistence that the criminal law be enforced to discourage their practices. But far from possessing ancient roots, American laws targeting same-sex couples did not develop until the last third of the 20th century. The reported decisions concerning the prosecution of consensual homosexual sodomy between adults for the years 1880 through 1995 are not always clear in the details, but a significant number involved conduct in a public place. It was not until the 1970s that any state singled out same-sex relations for criminal prosecution, and only nine states have done so. In summary, the historical grounds relied upon in Bowers are more complex than the majority opinion and the concurring opinion by Chief Justice Berger indicate. Their historical premises are not without doubt and, at the very least, are overstated. It must be acknowledged, of course, that the court in Bowers was making the broader point that for centuries there have been powerful voices to condemn homosexual conduct as immoral. The condemnation has been shaped by religious beliefs, conceptions of right and acceptable behavior, and respect for the traditional family. For many persons, these are not trivial concerns, 
but profound and deep convictions accepted as ethical and moral principles to which they aspire and which thus determine the course of their lives. These considerations do not answer the question before us, however. The issue is whether the majority may use the power of the state to enforce these views on the whole society through operation of the criminal law. Our obligation is to define the liberty of all, not to mandate our own moral code. Chief Justice Berger joined the opinion for the court in Bowers and further explained his views as follows. Decisions of individuals relating to homosexual conduct have been subject to state intervention throughout the history of Western civilization. Condemnation of those practices is firmly rooted in Judeo-Christian moral and ethical standards. As with Justice White's assumptions about history, scholarship casts some doubt on the sweeping nature of the statement by Chief Justice Berger as it pertains to private homosexual conduct between consenting adults. In all events, we think that our laws and traditions in the past half-century are of most relevance here. These references show an emerging awareness that liberty gives substantial protection to adult persons in deciding how to conduct their private lives in matters pertaining to sex. These considerations do not answer the question before us, however. The issue is whether the majority may use the power of the state to enforce these views on the whole society through operation of the criminal law. Our obligation is to define the liberty of all, not to mandate our own moral code. Chief Justice Berger joined the opinion for the court in Bowers and further explained his views as follows. Decisions of individuals relating to homosexual conduct have been subject to state intervention throughout the history of Western civilization. Condemnation of those practices is firmly rooted in Judeo-Christian moral and ethical standards. As with Justice White's assumptions about history, scholarship casts some doubt on the sweeping nature of the statement by Chief Justice Berger as it pertains to private homosexual conduct between consenting adults. In all events, we think that our laws and traditions in the past half-century are of most relevance here. These references show an emerging awareness that liberty gives substantial protection to adult persons in deciding how to conduct their private lives in matters pertaining to sex. History and tradition are the starting point, but not in all cases the ending point of the substantive due process inquiry. This emerging recognition should have been apparent when Bowers was decided. In 1955, the American Law Institute promulgated the Model Penal Code and made clear that it did not recommend or provide for criminal penalties for consensual sexual relations conducted in private. It justified its decision on three grounds. One, the prohibitions undermined respect for the law by penalizing conduct many people engaged in. Two, the statutes regulated private conduct not harmful to others. And three, the laws were arbitrarily enforced and thus invited the danger of blackmail.
1961, Illinois changed its laws to conform to the model penal code. Other states soon followed. In Bowers, the court referred to the fact that before 1961, all 50 states had outlawed sodomy, and that at the time of the court's decision, 24 states and the District of Columbia had sodomy laws. Justice Powell pointed out that these prohibitions were often being ignored, however. Georgia, for instance, had not sought to enforce its law for decades. The sweeping references by Chief Justice Berger to the history of Western civilization and to Judeo-Christian moral and ethical standards did not take account of the other authorities pointing in an opposite direction. A committee advising the British Parliament recommended in 1957 repeal of laws punishing homosexual conduct. Parliament enacted the substance of those recommendations ten years later. Of even more importance, almost five years before Bowers was decided, the European Court of Human Rights considered a case with parallels to Bowers and today's case. An adult male resident in Northern Ireland alleged he was a practicing homosexual who desired to engage in consensual homosexual conduct. The laws of Northern Ireland forbade him that right. He alleged that he had been questioned, his home had been searched, and he feared criminal prosecution. The court held that the laws proscribing the conduct were invalid under the European Convention on Human Rights authoritative in all countries that are members of the Council of Europe. The decision is at odds with the premise in Bowers that the claim put forward was insubstantial in our Western civilization. In our own constitutional system, the deficiencies in Bowers became even more apparent in the years following its announcement. The 25 states with laws prohibiting the relevant conduct referenced in the Bowers decision are reduced now to 13, of which four enforce their laws only against homosexual conduct. In those states where sodomy is still proscribed, whether for same-sex or heterosexual conduct, there is a pattern of non-enforcement with respect to consenting adults acting in private. The state of Texas admitted in 1994 that as of that date, it had not prosecuted anyone under those circumstances. Two principal cases decided after Bowers cast its holding into even more doubt. In Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania v. Casey, the court reaffirmed the substantive force of the liberty protected by the Due Process Clause. The Casey decision again confirmed that our laws and tradition afford constitutional protection to personal decisions relating to marriage, procreation, contraception, family relationships, child-rearing, and education. In explaining the respect the Constitution demands for the autonomy of the person in making these choices, we stated as follows. Quote, these matters involving the most intimate and personal choices a person may make in a lifetime, choices central to personal dignity and autonomy, are central to the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment. 
At the heart of liberty is the right to define its own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood or they formed under compulsion of the state, unquote. As an alternative argument in this case, counsel for the petitioners and some amici contend that Romer provides the basis for declaring the Texas statute invalid under the Equal Protection Clause. That is a tenable argument, but we conclude the instant case requires us to address whether Bowers itself has continuing validity. Were we to hold the statute invalid under the Equal Protection Clause, some might question whether a prohibition would be valid if drawn differently, say, to prohibit the conduct both between same-sex and different-sex participants. Equality of treatment and the due process right to demand respect for conduct protected by the substantive guarantee of liberty are linked in important respects, and a decision on the latter point advances both interests. If protected conduct is made criminal and the law which does so remains unexamined for its substantive validity, its stigma might remain even if it were not enforceable as drawn for equal protection reasons. When homosexual conduct is made criminal by the law of a state, that declaration in and of itself is an invitation to subject homosexual persons to discrimination both in the public and in the private spheres. The central holding of Bowers has been brought into question by this case and it should be addressed. Its continuance as precedent demeans the lives of homosexual persons. The stigma this criminal statute imposes, moreover, is not trivial. The offense, to be sure, is but a Class C misdemeanor, a minor offense in the Texas legal system. Still, it remains a criminal offense, with all that imports for the dignity of the persons charged. The petitioners will bear on their record the history of their criminal convictions. Just this term, we rejected various challenges to state laws requiring the registration of sex offenders. We are advised that if Texas convicted an adult for private, consensual homosexual conduct under the statute here in question, the convicted person would come within the registration laws of at least four states were he or she to be subject to their jurisdiction. This underscores the consequential nature of the punishment and the state-sponsored condemnation attendant to the criminal prohibition. Furthermore, the Texas criminal conviction carries with it the other collateral consequences always following a conviction, such as notations on job application forms, to mention but one example. The foundations of Bowers have sustained serious erosion from our recent decisions in Casey and Romer. When our precedent has thus been weakened, criticism from other sources is of greater significance. In the United States, criticism of Bowers has been substantial and continuing, disapproving of its reasoning in all respects, not just as to its historical assumptions. The courts of five different states have declined to follow it in interpreting provisions of their own state constitutions 
parallel to the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. To the extent Bowers relied on values we share with the wider civilization, it should be noted that the reasoning and holding in Bowers have been rejected elsewhere. The European Court of Human Rights has followed not Bowers, but its own decision in Dudgeon v. United Kingdom. Other nations, too, have taken action consistent with an affirmation of the protected right of homosexual adults to engage in intimate, consensual conduct. The right the petitioners seek in this case has been accepted as an integral part of human freedom in many other countries. There has been no showing that in this country the governmental interest in circumscribing personal choice is somehow more legitimate or urgent. The doctrine of stare decisis is essential to the respect accorded to the judgments of the court and to the stability of the law. It is not, however, an inexorable command. In Casey, we noted that when a court is asked to overrule a precedent recognizing a constitutional liberty interest, individual or societal reliance on the existence of that liberty cautions with particular strength against reversing course. The holding in Bowers, however, has not induced detrimental reliance comparable to some instances where recognized individual rights are involved. Indeed, there has been no individual or societal reliance on Bowers of the sort that could counsel against overturning its holding once there are compelling reasons to do so. Bowers itself causes uncertainty, for the precedents before and after its issuance contradict its central holding. Our prior cases make two propositions abundantly clear. First, the fact that the governing majority in a state has traditionally viewed a particular practice as immoral is not a sufficient reason for upholding a law prohibiting the practice. Neither history nor tradition could save a law prohibiting miscegenation from constitutional attack. Second, individual decisions by married persons concerning the intimacies of their physical relationship, even when not intended to produce offspring, are a form of liberty protected by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Moreover, this protection extends to intimate choices by unmarried as well as married persons. Justice Stevens's analysis, in our view, should have been controlling in Bowers and should control here. Bowers was not correct when it was decided, and it is not correct today. It ought not to remain binding precedent. Bowers v. Hardwick should be, and now is, overruled. The present case does not involve minors. It does not involve persons who might be injured or coerced or who are situated in relationships where consent might not easily be refused. It does not involve public conduct or prostitution. It does not involve whether the government must give formal recognition to any relationship that homosexual persons seek to enter. The case does involve two adults who, with full and mutual consent from each other, engaged in sexual practices 
common to a homosexual lifestyle. The petitioners are entitled to respect for their private lives. The state cannot demean their existence or control their destiny by making their private sexual conduct a crime. Their right to liberty under the Due Process Clause gives them the full right to engage in their conduct without intervention of the government. It is a promise of the Constitution that there is a realm of personal liberty which the government may not enter. The Texas statute furthers no legitimate state interest which can justify its intrusion into the personal and private life of the individual. Had those who drew and ratified the due process clauses of the Fifth Amendment or the Fourteenth Amendment known the components of liberty in its manifold possibilities, they might have been more specific. They did not presume to have this insight. They knew times can blind us to certain truths, and later generations can see that laws once thought necessary and proper, in fact, serve only to oppress. As the Constitution endures, persons in every generation can invoke its principles in their own search for greater freedom. The judgment of the Court of Appeals for the Texas 14th District is reversed, and the case is remanded for further proceedings not inconsistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to what SCOTUS wrote us.